0: Someone say You're yes down, if Arthur? you can hear me. Okay. Someone say yes. Cool. Um. Well, without any further ado, I Someone say Someone we... say yes. Oh, God, Arthur. I can't... I'm sorry. If they can hear me. <laughs> Arthur, you... I hate to tell you this, but you keep... <laughs> You sound a little faint and then you keep I just cutting and you out? keep fading out, so I'm talking, and then suddenly I realize you've been talking and I feel really bad. About
1: Me too. It. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm
0: not being ignored. We love you.
2: Hello and welcome to a century in cinema. My name is Arthur. I'm a local filmmaker here in Utah. And my veins are overflowing with vitamin C today. Just a great substance.
0: And I'm Andrew, professional film historian. And uh, my veins are flowing with spicy fried chicken. And I think it's the heaviest meal I've ever had before recording. So we're going to see how that pays off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, this third person, this third person is Elise Hansen. Hi, I'm Elise. A local playwright and novelist, actor, all that theater nerd stuff, my veins are flowing with a fire of 10,000 spicy burritos. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a fury today. I, I'm just a fury.
0: For those <laughs> of you who are on our Patreon, uh, I have mentioned Elise a couple of times. She is a really wonderful playwright, a very talented actress, and she and I have worked together and collaborated a lot over the past few years. I really wanted to get her on an episode and this just seemed like, I don't know, I don't know why I chose this one because this one was the first one I offered, but it just, I don't know. This felt like the right one to have a lease on for. So we'll see if I was right by the end of the episode.
1: uh, (laughs) I know.
2: Flying by the seat of our pants, we don't know. We don't know.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew.
2: Yes, and this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I have not seen. But I most likely have. From every year. This week, we are in 2007. We're watching Persepolis, directed by Marjon Satrapi and Vincent Paternod. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online down in the link in our show notes. How did we all watch this one?
0: I own this on DVD. I, it's, the, it's the DVD from... 2007 when they released it that was I, I bought it as soon as it came out the og cool
1: i believe i rented it on amazon prime but it, i had to watch it on my computer for some reason i wasn't able to watch it on my tv
2: uh yeah i also rented it too bad it's a beautiful movie Mhm. what do we do now we uh we talk about what's going on in 2007 oh big news from apple the iphone is announced this year forever changing uh everything i think Uh, Also, forever changing everything, the housing bubble in uh, the United States pops, and we'll hear more about that next Next year in 2008. Yikes. yikes. There's the Virginia Tech massacre. Casual. Casual uh, mass shooting in the United States. You know how it goes. (laughs) Uh, I also see that Salt Lake City is in the world news. Trolley Square Mall has a mass shooting. We oh, did. Were y'all both mm-hmm. living here at that time? Uh, I was in Park City.
1: Yes. Yeah, I had some friends witness some stuff. Um, so, you know, pretty traumatic all around. I fortunately was not there. I've never spent much time in Trolley Square. It seems so sparse. I think it, it, since then, too, it has had trouble yeah. drawing a, a crowd.
2: There are mass shootings in other countries around the world as well, and terrorist attacks. Uh, You know, the Iraq War is still going on. British troops withdraw this year. Rupert Murdoch acquires the Wall Street Journal. Also, no big deal. Casual, casual. (laughs) Um, Do you two remember anything big from 2007? Like, what do you remember from this year, if anything? Or were you just, like, engrossed in high school, middle school, that stuff going on in your own life?
1: Well, I was in college, sort of.
0: This was the year I came out publicly, so I was dealing with that.
2: Oh, big Mm. year. Yeah.
1: I feel like for me, too, it was a year of a lot of personal life stuff. And this was the year that I discovered that I could not do college and I wasn't going to try anymore. So, yeah, (laughs) I I stopped that
2: nonsense. Yeah, but, you know, fuck it. You're doing great. (laughs) Well, thank you.
0: (laughs) And, of course, I remember the Deathly Hallows Midnight book release that was such an insane moment in my life did you all read it in like two days as well oh yeah oh man Uh, i don't think that those books would have been the same if the movies hadn't started coming out yeah when they did Mm -hmm. because deathly hallows is written in a way that feels like this is made to be a movie very cinematic completely Um, That epilogue is still just horrendous.
2: And now J.K. Rowling (laughs) just
0: completely sucks.
2: Um, Oh yeah! It's around this time that I'm also just absolutely falling in love with Avatar The Last Airbender. Are you two fans of that show? Oh, yeah. I watched every episode as it aired. I was watching it as it aired, too. But I do think it was around this time when the second season was coming out or we were waiting for (sighs) the third season. And I was just in love with it. I was... I was really into Avatar The Last Airbender.
0: For me personally, and this is completely personal because I know quality-wise there's a lot to argue against this, but television was at its peak that back half of season two of Avatar The Last Airbender. I'm going to agree
2: with you, Andrew, because 2007 was also the year that Mad Men first aired, and that's the greatest show of all time.
0: Did you start watching that in 2007?
2: No, I started watching that in 2011.
0: Oh, fake fan. (laughs) This is not a recommendation or anything, but since we're talking about franchises and stuff we liked when we were kids, this is the year the Golden Compass movie came out. It was so wild because it came out my birthday weekend. And again, remember, I'm in rural Alabama. And I was wanting to get a bunch of people together to go see the movie for my birthday. And at this point, I was already struggling with the few friends I had. And the few friends I had did not want to come with me to that movie because it was considered so anti-Christian. So I went with just one other friend. We'd both read the book and we'd seen the trailer. I talk about this all the time. The trailer for Golden Compass shows the finale with the spirit door being opened which means that Roger has clearly been sacrificed. I'm I'm getting into esoteric knowledge, but whatever. I'm with you, I'm with you. But it, it, it shows, like, all of these events that happen in the very end of the book. And so we're sitting there in the movie. We're mostly enjoying it. And then right before the ending, it just stops. They're in a blimp. They're going towards the big final area. And the movie literally just stops and credits start going. And I remember sitting there slack-jawed, and I was like, did I hallucinate the trailer? I had the trailer downloaded onto my iPod Classic. It was 2007 was a wild time. And so we watched the trailer on my iPod Classic in the movie theater. And we were like, no, it's right there. And then, of course, the director, Chris Weitz, would later come out and say that his cut was yanked from him and the studio was panicking because of the conservative... Crowd, getting in a tizzy and they thought if the movie depicted a child being murdered that wouldn't help their case and I just think that's the dumbest and most cowardice thing I've ever heard and we'll never know what the rest of that series would have been like but I would have loved to have seen Nicole Kidman play Madame Coulter all the way through to the end of her art
1: it was so odd because the Larry H. Miller uh, movie theater here The Gateway it did Refused to show some movies sometimes. And yeah, they were not going to show it. And it was it was supposed to be a big movie. You know, big release. And uh, Larry H. Miller was like, no. Content. That's
0: crazy. <laughs> that's know.
1: crazy. I know. But they were showing it in promo. So that's why I saw it. Huh.
2: It was number 13 at the Worldwide Box Office. So it was good.
1: I enjoyed it.
0: It was successful to a certain extent, but... They just, they destroyed themselves, and this is what eventually led to the new line
2: imploding, which is going to happen very soon, and this was a huge part of that. I do see that it only made $70 million at the U.S. domestic box office, which is pretty low. Mm-hmm. I also distinctly remember seeing
0: an early screener of Spider-Man 3. That was the first early screener I ever got access to, and I was in there, and it was a full audience It was a week before the movie came out, and I remember that everybody loved it. Me too. I was sitting there having a great time. We were laughing. We were cheering. We were having the time of our lives. And then it came out that next weekend and just got obliterated, Mm -hmm. just trashed audiences and critics. And... I I remember, and I still defend Spider-Man 3. I I think it's campy, I think it's fun, I think it has cinematic value, I like it a lot.
1: Yeah, no, I love, I mean, Spider-Man 3 was all about camp. It It was really delightful. There was musical numbers in it, I mean, come on, just get on board yeah up on the train we're going for a ride
0: yeah but i will i will never forget being at that pre-screener and coming out of it and everyone was like oh this is going to be huge everybody's gonna love this this was a great film
2: (laughs) and then watching that but it made a ton of money it made so much money it really did yes number three at the worldwide box office 890 million dollars I think it was the most expensive film ever made at the time.
0: $300 or something. I remember this was the summer of the threequels, because it was Spider-Man 3, then Pirates of the Caribbean Mm. 3, then Shrek
2: 3, then
0: Ocean's 13, then Born 3, then Rush Hour 3.
1: That's interesting.
2: Andrew, do you know what's number one at the worldwide box office? Numero uno. Oh. Is it Pirates?
0: Is it Pirates 3? It is Pirates 3 I knew it was one of them Because it's Pirates 3 Then Shrek 3 Then Spider-Man 3 right?
2: Um, Sitting there at number 2 is Harry Potter 5
1: mm.
2: Oh mm. Whoa. Harry Potter's still coming out Where was Shrek 3 and all that? Uh, number 4 oh, okay. Spider-Man 3 is number 3 though Should we get into obscure recommendations And does anyone want to talk about Transformers? That's a no
0: Well, I do want to mention that Michelangelo Antonioni and Ingmar Bergman both passed away on the same day. Wildly enough, it was July 30th, 2007. So today is the, what, 15th anniversary? Well, yesterday was the 15th anniversary of that.
2: Yes, because we're recording on July 31st.
0: What does it all mean? And also, this was the year the HD DVD came out. And the first film that was released on HD DVD... Do either of you know this? This is Joss Whedon's Serenity. What? And it was the first film to be available to well, it's the first recorded film that we we like <laughs> that we can find that was released as a torrent online. It was like the first DVD rip that was downloaded widespread. Oh, and that became a huge thing this year.
2: I would have expected that to be really prevalent earlier.
0: 2007 was really when the... I mean, we've been talking about how the internet felt so much more prevalent looking back, but as we're going year by year, I'm realizing this is all so recent. Mm. Because 2007 was really when the internet became, like, huge, huge. Huge, huge. Like, at this point, people... There are still people who don't have cell phones that are living their lives like normal people.
1: Well, and and you mentioned the, the introduction of the iPhone. I mean, that's really when it became, like, truly... Everyone has to have this. Everyone has to have the internet. Everyone has to have these devices because like, the world is just forming around it.
2: Obscure recommendations, Andrew. What do you got for us? Oh, yes. I have so
0: many memories of seeing so many great movies this year. First up, I want to talk about the film The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Mm. Julian Schnabel. This is an incredible film. It's a true story about... A writer who, uh, he, he became quadriplegic after a stroke. And the film is about him being able to form communication using nothing but his right eyelid, which is the only thing he can move. And him and his nurse come up with a form of communication, and he writes a whole book. And this all really happened. This movie is an adaptation of the book he wrote. It's an insane movie. Diving Bell and the Butterfly, highly recommended. Okay, it's not often that I praise a remake, but when I tell you that James Mangold's remake of 310 to Yuma <laughs> is one of the best westerns I've ever seen. Yes, yes. I'm not exaggerating.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The movie rocks. Y'all both have seen it? So yeah, fun. I love it. This was this was one of many movies that, again, I, I just went to the theater and watched. Who cares? Didn't know anything about it. Had never seen the original. Didn't have any reason to be excited for it. And I mean, maybe five, ten minutes in, suddenly I was on the edge of my seat just staring at the screen like, what? And as it was building and building, I just, I was so invested. I loved every second of it. I I still love that movie. I can still watch it. Next up, I'm going to bring up the oft-underlooked Spanish horror film, The Orphanage, directed by J.A. Bayona. I mentioned in a past episode that, Uh, Japanese film studios and Japanese culture in general have been talking about horror as an allegory for mental illness or loss or something more human for a long time. The Orphanage was Spain's foot through that door, and it's still a fantastic movie. It's so scary through so much of the movie, and then the third act is just pure drama. It's so incredible. And Bailey and uh, she does just such an amazing job in this performance. It's funny, there's been talk about an American remake since literally 2007. In 2007, people were talking about an American remake of this movie. And so many people have approached it, and nobody has ever made it. And I think it's because it's just done so perfectly here. How could yeah. you ever recreate it? And I remember seeing that and and thinking, you know, it just feels like such a typical ghost story. And yeah, when that reveal punched at the end, that just made me so upset. I just had no idea what movie I was watching. Next up is the documentary, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. This is a documentary about people who engage in national Donkey Kong arcade competitions. You think it's just about this sort of eclectic group of people, and it sort of boils down to being about these two men specifically. But it it turns into this incredibly engaging narrative about cheating, about how even on the smallest scale, there's always something scummy going on underneath, about just the way America in general views competition. It's a really engaging documentary, and it talks about a lot of very intriguing issues, but from such an entertaining aspect and... Yeah, I love The King of Kong. It's a really wonderful documentary.
2: I've been meaning to watch this for forever. Like literally since 2007, this film has piqued my interest. Um, Next up, I'm going to recommend Garth Jennings' Son of Rambo,
0: which is not actually a Rambo sequel. Rambo is spelled R-A-M-B-O-W. It's about this young British child who is, uh, he's raised in a very conservative home, And through a series of mishaps, he ends up stranded in this person's attic and watches Rambo through a windowsill for the first time. And it changes his life. And the two kids in it, nothing ever happened of Bill Milner to my knowledge, but Will Poulter has been in a lot of films since then. And he's really wonderful in this movie. This was a very young performance from him. And it's just a very sweet, endearing movie. It's a great movie for kids, great movie for grown-ups. I like it quite a lot. Uh, And then for my final recommendation, I'm going to recommend another one that I know Elise just loves, which is Adrienne Shelley's Waitress. Wonderful romantic film about a woman played by Carrie Russell who is pregnant and unhappily married. She's living in the South. And just how she is able to turn her life around and make a life for herself. It's a really wonderful, charming film. And I've mentioned the tragic end of Adrienne Shelley before on this podcast, but she died a pretty horrible death right before this film came out, which was very sad. And I'm happy that she, and she's in the film as well. She's wonderful in the movie as well. And it's just nice that this document of her talent exists because she wrote it, directed it, her performance in it is great. It's just like a wonderful encapsulation of talent and it's sad that she was taken from us so early and so brutally, but this movie is so lovely and so wonderful. And I love it.
2: Yes. Waitress is amazing.
0: Yes. Those are my official recommendations. But I also know Elise had mentioned before we started recording that one of the scariest movies she's ever seen came out this year. Did you want to talk about that?
1: Part of the reason I love asking people, what the scariest movie they've ever seen is because i feel like horror is the most subjective of all the genres i think it's so personal what scares you um so for me personally the scariest movie i ever have seen is the mist that came out in 2007 it's based on a short novel by stephen king uh about a bunch of people who get trapped in a grocery store during uh an event. They don't quite know what's happening. A mist descends upon them, and out of the mist come these horrifying monsters that seem from a from another planet. Nobody really knows. But what happens in the grocery store is even more horrifying than the monsters without because everybody kind of starts to form this mob mentality. There's a, a religious zealot woman played by
0: Marcia Gay Harden. Thank you, Marcia
1: Gay Harden. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful Marcia Gay Harden, as always. Uh, She is so terrifying. And everyone just starts listening to her. At one point, she uh, convinces the mob to sacrifice the life of this young soldier guy. Anyway, the ending of that movie is among the most horrifying things I have ever seen.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember remember seeing that in theaters and just... Gut-wrenching. What's the scariest movie you've ever seen Arthur?
2: Oh, I've already told you it's the Blair Witch Project and you dismissed me.
1: That is effective. Good stuff.
0: Yeah, that didn't that movie didn't do anything to me, but I do respect it. I absolutely respect it. Yeah, mine is Alien. I don't want that to happen to me.
2: Andrew, at one point in my life, I would have called Sunshine from 2007 my favorite film of all time. I absolutely love this film. And also, for a while, Danny Boyle was my favorite filmmaker. I I think I had that as my go-to statement. Basically because of this film, though. Because Sunshine awakens something deep inside me. Some love for science fiction... Yeah, this is a great film. And it's weird that it's kind of like two films, right? Like it's it's a really epic space adventure. And then it's also a really weird, like, space horror thriller. What's the third film?
0: The first film is just a science sci fi adventure movie. And they're just on a mission. And then they get onto the other ship and it turns into a horror film, like a thriller where you're wondering what happened to the other ship. And then it turns into a full on, like, midnight movie slasher for the final 30 minutes.
2: Hell yeah. It's awesome. But it was also like my first Blu-ray. So I was just astounded by how it looked to mm-hmm. just the crispness and the the beauty of the, the sun and the mirrors and the spaceship. It's about this team of scientists who are taking a, a giant bomb to the sun to restart it because the sun is slowly dying and uh, humanity is on the brink of extinction. I, I, I w- highly recommend this film, but a lot of people also don't like it because it is pretty eclectic. But that's Danny Boyle for you.
0: And this was also the year that No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood came
2: out. Just two little movies.
0: Yeah, I think 2007 is one of the best
2: years of cinema in recent memory. It's definitely my year in cinema. Like, this is when I really, really, truly fell in love with movies. Mm -hmm.
0: This is when I uh,
1: started kind of paying attention to the Oscars. Uh, The first time I really got invested in something winning... Or someone, rather. I loved Marianne Cotier's performance in Limpia Bros. And with No Country for Old Men, uh, There Will Be Blood. And Um Into the Wild, I remember being a big deal.
0: And Atonement really blew my mind. Uh, Darjeeling Limited, Sweeney Todd. There were so many movies that just blew my mind in theaters. And Tim Burton has not made a good movie since Sweeney Todd. And I'm sad about that.
1: That's fair. That's fair.
0: We should at least mention that Paranormal Activity came out this year, changed the face of horror, and to to date is like the most profitable movie ever because it cost $5 to make and then made a million, (laughs) a billion dollars.
2: But we did talk about that on our Saw episode, and this is the Persepolis episode. So let's get to Persepolis. I agree. All right. So,
0: Elise, you have our plot synopsis this week.
1: (laughs) It's the 1970s in Iran, and the country is heading toward revolution. Little Marjan watches as her adult friends and relations talk politics, saying how something needs to be done about the regime. In 1979, the Shah is finally overthrown, but Iran's republic is not what was promised. Islamic fundamentalists seize power, imposing strict Islamic law, such as head coverings for women, the execution of political dissenters, which includes Marjan's beloved uncle Anoush. The Iran-Iraq war starts up, and things become more harrowing. Marjan is continuously in trouble for her passion for punk music and her blustery disposition, and her parents fear for her safety. They send her to a secondary school in Vienna, where she butts heads with nuns, experiences some romantic foibles, and eventually ends up homeless and suffering from bronchitis or bronchopneumonia. She returns to Iran, hoping the end of the war means better days. But things remain largely the same. Simple pleasures are still stripped away, and she is unable to hold hands with her paramour Reza. So they decide to marry, but are soon miserable in their choice. One night, a party at a party—sorry, one night—a party Marjan is attending is raided, and a friend named Nima dies while jumping the roofs trying to escape. His death electrifies Marjan who leaves her husband in Iran behind, remembering her promise to her grandmother and her uncle Anoush to always remember where she came from.
0: Very nice. Yeah, we gave you a tough
2: plot synopsis.
1: (laughs) You did great, though.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this movie is just one big montage.
1: It is. It's very much like stream of consciousness.
2: Animated film for adults, very much so, uh, based on two graphic novels by uh, the director, uh, which are based on her own life and experience.
1: I found it, I mean, just really relatable. I mean, it's just kind of, of course, we've got like this, you know, geopolitical stuff going on in the background of which, like, I know super little. I mean, it was. I know it was a, an unusual revolution. People didn't really see it coming. But mostly just at its crux, it's just kind of how do you figure out who you are? It was yeah, it was really relatable, and of course, like it kind of hit close to home. A bit I mentioned earlier, my my sister's name is Marjan. She's not Iranian, but she's Palestinian. Uh, she and my brother, and they come from an immigrant family. So,
0: do you have general thoughts, Arthur? I want to go last.
2: I absolutely love this film. I took a course in Iranian cinema in college that I thought was really enlightening, interesting. Yeah, there's there's a there's a long history of Iranian films that I I just think are worth diving into. Although this is a, I think this is technically a French film. I mean, it feels Iranian, right? Even though it's, it's spoken in French and, and whatnot. This is a, this is a culturally Iranian film. And I think it's just a fantastic look into what went down from the perspective of someone who survived it someone who's on the sidelines and looking in it's not it's not a flag waving ideologue it's just a, it's just a person it's just someone who's trying to grow up as all this shit goes down and i think that's a really wonderful way to talk about history and talk about big historical events at least you say you don't like you don't know what happened but i think through films like this and through art like this this is a great way for us in the west to try to wrap our heads around what happened and to empathize with the people who are going through terrible things. Absolutely. I think this is an important film. I really love what it's doing. And also the golden age of animation truly is happening around this time. I I I think that this is a wonderful, small independent ish film that just looks gorgeous. It's got a unique animation style. I I assume based on the graphic novel, I I just love animated films like this. I I want more movies like this that really have a unique voice. I, I say a unique voice, but they, they have a voice in their style, in their artistic presentation. Yeah, I love this film.
0: Yeah, I really love this movie, too. I remember seeing this in theaters as well. And the trailer really makes it look like it's just a nice like pleasant movie about a girl growing up in Iran and it even the trailer makes it clear. Okay. They're going to talk about some of the political stuff, but mainly it's showing her like loving ABBA and like loving iron maiden and you know, showing her just being like a cool punk kid. So I was like, Oh, this is, this will be good. And I mean, I was just so unprepared for all of the information and just how much it dives into her psyche. I mean, There's this insane suicide attempt scene that's so beautifully animated. That had a huge impact on me, um, thinking you're about to die and then being confronted by the spirit of your perceived God and Karl Marx Mm -hmm. together. (laughs) And God and Karl Marx team up to say, you have to keep going. (laughs) That, That really opened something up for me. I did want to say, Elise, that... One of the main reasons that I asked you for this episode specifically, I respect you a lot as a creator and as somebody who really takes hold of things that you create. And this is one of the only films on our list, if not the only film on our list, that's not only based on a book written by the creator who then directed the film, but also it's about their life. And there's Mm -hmm. so much about this vision that's just completely her how she wants it to be told and maintaining control of her vision. And that's something that I know you really like to do as a creator and appreciate. So I I was really excited for you to see this film.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Just a crazy concept for a movie. And it really kicked off this idea of adult animation. In fact, specifically adult animation based in modern politics next year 2008 Waltz with Bashir comes out which is one of my favorite movies and that's an animated documentary it's just an absolutely insane movie about the Lebanon war and pretty much every year after Persepolis we always get sort of an awards not a award uh, just an adult oriented animated film that deals with deeper issues And I agree with you, Arthur, I would love for there to be more, but this was the first film of its kind, in my mind anyways, I'm sure there was, of course, there were things that paved the way, but for it to be advertised so heavily as an animated film, and then for it to have such deep themes, I don't know, it just really blew my mind as a kid, and I I really love this movie, it opened my mind to what this medium is capable of. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, and talk about striking. I mean, the, the just the imagery, the depth of field accomplished with just black and white. I mean, there's nary a color to be seen. It's very stark. And it doesn't feel that way. It feels like so animated, so lively.
0: And I also love that the flashbacks are presented as sort of shadow puppet sequences, the way they move and flip. Mm. Not flashbacks, that's misleading considering how much of the movie is a flashback. Specifically when she is imagining (laughs) what had happened earlier in history and when she's being told stories about history. Yes, It's presented in this sort of shadow puppet style that's really cool.
1: I loved that. I mean, partially because I have always been a huge, huge admirer and fan of uh, Middle Eastern uh, storytelling, uh, fairy tales and folklore and stuff like that. And it was just... Very true to that kind of style of storytelling. And yes, I love the little puppet imagery. It was so cute. And I learned something. It was educational.
2: Yes. Argo didn't tell me the whole story? (laughs) Is this a German expressionist art style I detect?
0: Mm, I can see that argument,
2: especially when, um, when the two school
0: matrons the two women i, I don't know what yes they're, so
2: they're, when, they when they're towering over, over her. her that's very german yes. expressionism mm. i would not be surprised if that's a huge influence on her artistic style growing up in uh vienna shadows everywhere lovely lovely look
0: did you notice when she's learning vienna history and she sees the celebration of yodeling. You see her mental image of the person yodeling. And in the background, you see someone do a Hitler Heil just for a second before it goes to the next memory. Whoa. Th- no, I didn't that's see that. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's it's showing just even in a very subtle way. It's, she's like, I'm being forced to learn to celebrate this whole culture that in my mind is just nothing but Nazism. <laughs> Which I think, it, I think that's a very interesting way to depict that visually. And it's something you don't notice your first time.
1: To me, that was like how how we all just think of different cultures as like this. The one thing mm-hmm. you, you have this snap image in your mind and you think, oh, OK, that's what's going This thing, uh, Iran, this thing. Yeah, we all do that.
2: Stereotypes.
1: Yes. Which is why, I mean, films like this, again, are so important. I mean, you're seeing just a, a girl who's growing up and she's just like you. I loved her relationship with her grandmother. That was my favorite. Part
0: of the movie, oh, yeah. No. The story seems like it's completely
2: tethered to her relationship to her grandmother. Oh, absolutely, I love that. Um, should we talk about the review from the time period? Sure, yes. I sent you both this review from Roger Ebert, it was written in 2008. I see that Persepolis had more of a limited release in 2007, so on some lists, it actually shows up as a 2008 film. I mean, besides the fact that Roger Ebert just absolutely loves this film, like us, I found this opening paragraph to be insightful and a little interesting. Him talking about going to the Tehran Film Festival in 1972 and how, at least kind of like what you were talking about, how different people who live in different nations are not a monolith, right? We think of Iranians as a certain kind of people and they're not. It's a it's a whole mosaic of different people with different beliefs and they have a religious political structure right now but it's full of different kinds of people obviously and the same mm-hmm, is true in america mm-hmm. and roger ebert here specifically relates the feeling of watching this film to the feeling of having a religious zealot at the head of the government in 2007
1: i mean it's so odd with that part of what made that revolution in iran so strange i mean they didn't mean for this to happen they were uh, pro-western They were authoritarian. It was secular. It was a secular authoritarian monarchy. Mm -hmm. And then they went to this, you know, kind of theocracy. It was just it was such an interesting backward movement that happened, you know, where like the rest of the world wasn't uh, experiencing that kind of thing. It was just so odd and unprecedented.
2: I did kind of want to talk about the government reaction to Persepolis the Iranian government reaction to Persepolis um I couldn't find any official statement but on Wikipedia here I do have a quote uh when Persepolis was premiering at Cannes the Iranian government said quote this year the Cannes Film Festival in an unconventional and unsuitable act has chosen a movie about Iran that has presented an unrealistic face of the achievements and results of the glorious Islamic revolution in some of its parts end quote which you know Just some typical propaganda.
1: The word glorious just somehow. I
2: know, right? (laughs) Um, Can didn't take it down. But the Bangkok International Film Festival did pull Persepolis after the Iranian government got involved. It was also banned in Lebanon. I know it's had some controversy in America, of course. After all, it depicts disturbing themes and content including crudeness, I mean, there was a lot of sex in this film. <laughs> there wasn't for people who didn't see it.
0: I believe this film, even though I don't have any real basis for it, it seems like it had to have been made to a certain extent as a reaction to the anti-Muslim wave Mm. in america which was just rampant at this time i mean it's still around there's no denying that but at this point i mean you know with i remember from 2001 to 2010 like that was real that in my mind that's when it was really really bad
1: the word terrorist just meant someone from like the middle Middle east East.
2: yes um but ebert here in This first paragraph says, remember that on 9-11, there was a huge candlelight visual in Tehran in sympathy Mm -hmm. with us for the attack. And that reminded me of this moment back in 2001, uh, 9-11, when on that day, like we didn't know what was going on. I remember I was in class, I was in school, and my third grade teacher like pulled down a map and immediately pointed to Iran and said, they probably did this oh whoa they were they were clearly like riled up they were they were emotional they weren't thinking properly and they just pointed to iran and said they're the enemy now i i know people from iran now i know friends from iran the middle east and um it it just uh makes me sad that's all
1: it is awful i mean i mean as i brought up my siblings are a palestinian uh, Their last name is Alziat. And so every time, you know, it's not my pain or my story, but it's just we did have to go to the airport early, even mm-hmm. before 9-11 happened. That stuff, the, oh, we're doing random checks. You need to step aside over here, Um, happened to us every time we went on a family vacation. Of course, we laughed about it. It was just kind of like a family thing that was just kind of like, what are you going to do at that point? We know that they're being racist. We know what's happening here. We know that this check isn't random. We know we're sitting in this room where nobody else has to sit in this room for hours and hours on end.
2: I mean, very much like the characters in this film, you know, like they go from living a pretty normal life to living under an authoritarian theocracy. And and, and what are you going to do? You just kind of shrug and you have to kind of go with it and you're not going to like rebel and and take up arms, you just you, you're just trying to live your life. Mm-hmm. What can you do except shrug and just kind of go with it and try to survive? Yeah. So yeah, I, I like his sentiment, right? Countries are not monoliths, the The way that dominant political structure acts in 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 these countries, just because Iran, as a country hates America or hates the West. I mean, there are, are a myriad of people who have different beliefs within every single country. And it, it's it's unfair to group them all in one category.
0: I still remember that the part of this movie that shook me up the most, because, you know, keep in mind, I'm, I'm still early in high school. Like, I'm still pretty naive to the world and world history at this point. And I mean, I guess I still am, because we all are to a certain extent. It's, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's so vast. But I remember when they're describing the Iran Iraq war and doing that flashback. And they describe it as the West gave both sides weapons and that was bad for everybody. Mm. I just remember being like, what? And we did that. And like that really that sparked something in my head that hadn't been sparked yet. I was already kind of over the whole anti Middle Eastern thing um, because I got over that pretty quick. We had we had neighbors who were actually from Iran when I was very young. And they were lovely people, so uh, that was never really a bias that I harvested personally. I so I and I got tired of it really quick. But the perception of who attacked who and who was responsible was definitely in my mind. Okay, these these Islamic fundamentalists had attacked, uh, and it wasn't like you know it wasn't like a whole nation got together and was like let's go fuck over a country. You know, like that's never how it works, really. And so that was already annoying, but to to realize that we were so responsible for the tensions between those countries and had -hmm. our hands in so many pockets and were Mm -hmm. meddling around in so many different countries' affairs. That just that was something I hadn't really considered or put together before. So this is a fun movie. <laughs> it actually is. It that's really the thing. is. Yeah. It actually is a fun movie. Well, that that's another thing is that another reason <laughs> I wanted Elise on this one is because she loves nestling like very deep messages and specifically criticisms of America into these super fun, digestible packages and comedies and i love how this film is a very entertaining film you walk away from it for the most part feeling very satiated and very good about the experience there just is a lot of dark content inside of it
1: i am a huge believer in the delivery package and of course like comedy is where i live but i think people listen more in order to be relatable in order to be lovable i think you have to be funny and she is funny
0: Mm-hmm. She's
1: you know got her little moments of levity that are just so cute. I loved her singing "I um,
0: have the Tiger" It's tune. Tune. A good It was
1: <laughs> so cute, um, and so uh, like we're just trying to relate to each other in a in a buoyant kind of way, and, and that's more real life to me. I, I, that's why I, I don't know, I tend to have a trouble trouble with dramas, especially when it comes to TV shows. It's like, oh, come on, right? <laughs> like this isn't life. Life is. Life is joyful, and, and I think that finding that joy, even within these like really hard circumstances, makes it more not just palatable, but you see the humanity.
2: I would agree.
0: And I like how realistic she depicts herself. You know, this is Marjan Sistrapi. She's she's taking full control of her narrative here. There is, you know, a certain temptation, I think, in making it look like you always did the right thing at the right time when people are talking about themselves. But I love the scenes. Like, I love it when she's a kid and they find out that their schoolmate, his father, was a part of the Shah's secret police. And so they start chasing the kid around with nails in their hands, threatening to carve his eyes out. And they see it as just, you know, a harmless prank. But then when her mother finds out about it, she scolds her and tells her that it's wrong. So you get this whole, like, message of forgiveness. And you think, oh, she learned her lesson. And then she goes to confront the guy the next day. <laughs> She's like, oh, I just want to let you know that I forgive you for your father being a murderer. And the, and the kid just <laughs> freaks out. He's like, you don't know anything about my father. And, you know, he yells at her. And she has this sort of shocked look. Like, she really thought she was going to cause world peace. With her little spiel, and all she did was make things worse. And I think that's just such a realistic thing to depict in a movie. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, the scene when she's in her late teens and gets the other man arrested as a way of yes, not getting herself arrested. In the moment, it does feel like her only option, but it's the fact that she thinks it's funny and doesn't understand the weight of it at such a late age that her grandmother can't abide
2: by and that's just such that is such a powerful scene so this being very much marjan's film and basically her memoir can you tell me more about her i i mean i i assume she's a graphic novelist as well and i know she lives in paris now she no longer lives in iran
1: what does she do now yes it seems like she's still working on film i mean like she is an illustrator graphic novelist but she has had some other films come out. Uh, Chicken with Plums.
0: Which is also based off of one of her graphic novels.
1: Graphic novels. Uh, Radioactive.
0: Radioactive I haven't seen, but it stars Rosamund Pike and Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy plays like a young version of Rosamund Pike, which I think is pretty good casting.
1: That's hmm. about Marie Curie.
0: Mm-hmm, she plays Marie Curie. Uh,
1: she also directed comedy horror film... The voices, which I have seen the poster of, but I have not seen. It's got Ryan Reynolds, Anna Kendrick, uh, <laughs> really cute.
0: Oh, poster. Gemma Arterton, the most beautiful woman in Hollywood, in this humble podcaster's opinion.
1: But yes, yeah, so in any case, looks like she's still directing, which that's kind of fun, and it looks like it's fun that she's branched out of. She's not just doing political, uh, stuff.
2: Iranian political stuff. Yeah, I mean. Radioactive sounds completely different. I saw the trailer for The Voices,
0: and I thought that was just like a... I think that's just supposed to be sort of a dumb comedy. I think that's cool that she just had a dumb comedy.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. I, I love that. Yeah. I love that she branched out and did a dumb comedy. I mean, and a comedy horror? Hello. Hello. Love Love that. Hello. Love it.
2: The best genre.
1: That's so fun. I mean, she came from this place that she wasn't allowed to, like Michael Jackson...
0: Jaiko Max, you know Jaiko Max. Maxson. Jaco Maxson.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are we not? He <laughs> must not be named. Well, he doesn't have a nose. Uh, anyway, <laughs> oh my but... <laughs> god, <laughs> that was pretty good.
0: <laughs> he didn't have a nose. He's dead.
1: He didn't. I thought it fell off. Oh, oh, oh yes. Yeah. Well, no, nobody has a nose. Exactly. exactly.
0: Nobody. He, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: all noseless.
0: Yeah. Uh, I in love, when that, I I yeah, love no. when that guy says, because they're, they're like Pink Floyd, Iron Maiden. they say all the correct band names, it's just the one guy who says Jekyll Maxon. Jekyll <laughs> <that. laughs> Maxim. I love that so yeah. much.
1: Yeah. But yeah, no, just like her freedom, like she's free to direct a really dumb horror comedy movie with uh, Ryan Reynolds.
2: Yes, and I know she lives in France now. In, in this film, in Persepolis at least, she's living in Vienna and she feels kind of adrift in, in like she's, separated from her home culture so she goes back to iran despite the repression despite everything going on there she still feels drawn back to her home country i think there's something to be said about this feeling of like not having a real home when when something as terrible as a revolution the, the the iran iraq war goes down and just feeling like there's no real place for you to be in the world I don't know. know. That's captured really well. And I'd be interested to see her explore that now that she's older and see where she's at. Sure. It seems like she's living in France full time.
0: Marjan Satrapi has stated that one of her intentions with the graphic novel and with the film was to depict it in black and white so that it wasn't like you were visually looking at Iran as much as you were looking at just in any place where this story could have taken place because she wanted people to know, you know, any country could go through what Iran has gone through. And I was wondering what y'all felt, how y'all felt about that statement and that approach to it.
1: I mean, it makes sense. I I mean, it's still kind of like when you're a Westerner looking at all these women who are wearing something different than what our women wear. It's it's still kind of, it has that othering effect. Mm-hmm. And it's very much part of it because they're black outfits, right? So a lot of the black on screen is the women's outfits. But I can see her point in like just making it kind of just like, this is universal, This is it could be anywhere. And it could, really, you know. It's a very relatable story.
2: There is something really relatable about the story going on here. Um, I mean, America has its problems with religious fundamentalism. Absolutely. Sure, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of countries do. I mean, r- religion in the community you get from your religion is a, it's a very powerful force in, in your life. And there's power structures involved there that just are like any power structure, power hungry, and they, they want more and more control over. Anyways, what am I getting at? I don't know. With recent events in American history,
0: this potential Mm -hmm. future seems closer than ever.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's hard too because, I mean, of course, like, there, there are so many people there that you want to respect and honor what they believe in, but you also don't think that it's fair that certain people should be forced into doing something that they don't believe in. Would Marjan want to wear any quap if she wasn't made to like, you know, other women, of course, like this is their faith and this is something they want to participate in, but that's their choice. And so that's why like just seeing all these women dressed to the same, that's what gets under our gills. But then like we do the same thing in America. It's like not with clothing, but with um, laws.
2: I was going to say like lifestyle, like, yes Ma- making sure everyone fits into the box that mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. culture prescribes to us
1: yes and with and with legislation
0: and yeah you know arthur earlier you had mentioned that you had sort of a, mem- a triggering memory of a teacher in your class you know pointing to iran and saying they they did this i actually have a memory that i revisit quite a bit as well that sort of just came to me where we went to the church service at First Baptist Church of Trustful the next Sunday after the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks. And in general, that was just one of the most morose and disgusting things in my memory. Between the graphic footage they showed on the screens and the way they talked about people from the Middle East, it was just so disgusting. But the one thing that I remember is that they showed this pie chart of uh, the most followed religions in the world. And I'm not saying this is true. I don't know if this is true. I don't think this is true. But they showed that it was like other religions were like 15% and Christianity was like 35% and then the 40% was Muslim, uh, Islam. Mm -hmm. And the Islam part of the pie chart it stood out from the rest of the pie chart and it was in red and it was made to look so evil and menacing in that pie chart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they and they were pointing at me like, this is the enemy. And these are the people who attacked us as Christians. Mm-hmm. We should be converting these Islamic people to Christianity. So this won't happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, to say to all those impressionable young minds, Islamic fundamentalists are guilty of violence but Christian fundamentalists have you know that was never something we would do is just so ridiculous and so dirty and horrible just a horrible thing to plant in someone's brain
1: I I mean I kind of like the social experiment where they go around with uh the bible and they read passages of the bible and the people they're reading to assume that it's the quran they say yeah well that's why they're so violent that's why their fundamentalists are so violent that's why they're out there killing people it's like that was the bible (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah it gets pretty messed up in there quite a few times i mean i've i've read the bible more than once all the way through Mm uh i couldn't tell you much about it now that was a different time in my life and i was very young and i have purposefully been trying to sort of push not not the information but um the indoctrination that came with that and my entire motivation for reading it was indoctrination and thinking that would make me a better person and Mm. so in turning away from that and and trying to get that out of my head there's too much information in the bible to keep it all in without studying it constantly
1: there's a lot i have read it several times i have read the quran as well
0: i've never read the quran i am very interested in it
1: a lot of it's very beautiful so and I wouldn't say it's any more violent or backward or sexist or anything more than the Bible. It's pretty uh it's pretty uh perfect. Of course it's just kind of, it's right. ancient literature. It's you know it is what it is.
2: One thing I wanted to mention was the title of this film, Persepolis, which is mm. a direct reference to the original capital of Iran, like way back in you know ancient ancient 330 BC. It's just an allusion to the fact that, you know, this culture, this country is incredibly old. It's gone through a lot. And there's been cycles of change that have come and gone. And you get that a little bit from this film. But this is this is just one piece of a very long history of a culture. Compare that to America, the United States of America, um, you know, like a, a country that's about 250 years old, like not old like not at all old mm-hmm. and i mean yeah there's 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 a lot that can happen and we we're we're still very young as a country
1: that's true but persepolis is a it's a greek word it's from par- parsa the original word i i girl i was obsessed with the Achaemenid empire like i have studied that stuff that was like one of my nerd mm-hmm. things. I love that stuff. I I love it. Um, you know, Cyrus the great. Who who shows up? I mean, these people, these this history of Persia of these ancient places show up in the Bible, right? You know, you share that we share this commonality. They, he's he's mentioned. He's mentioned that in Isaiah. You know, this person who was part of the Achaemenid Empire. So it's just it's interesting to think about. I, I think we think of ourselves as so separate so much of the time it's real history you know that shows up there and it's just kind of interesting to think about
2: how does this film play now compared to 2007 for me personally and this is a purely an age
0: thing i think if i had been 30 in 2007 it would have hit even harder but watching it now versus watching it when i was a high schooler i mean i just have so much more respect for this And this movie was way more influential on me than I think I've given it credit for. I feel like the idea of leaving the South, leaving Alabama and pursuing something different. I don't think that was really a fully formed idea in my brain in 2007 or 2008, for that matter. But by 2009, it was it was on it was the first thing on my mind. And I feel like seeing this movie in 2008 was a
2: huge influence on that. It definitely speaks to a part of me that wants to leave and experience a new place, a new culture, a new life. Mm-hmm. So that's cool that it had that effect on you.
1: Yeah. The world is just so very big. Because, yeah, I mean, the, all those sorrows she witnesses, you know, her uncle, uh, her other uncle dying because he can't get proper health care, because he can't leave.
2: That's relatable.
1: I mean, yes, yeah. right. That's yeah. so relatable.
2: Yeah, We're that, that entire sequence
1: was like,
0: "Woo, I wonder, wonder what yeah. that's like."
1: <laughs> right? I mean, it's just kind of like it's just so. There's there are conversations that are happening, not just not just with me who like, yes, I do want to experience other things in the world, especially because I'm a, a writer. I, I want to see if I can make any real money doing this, and I have to go other places to do that. Utah's mm-hmm. not a place for that, but there's that. But there's also like, hey guys, like healthcare and women's rights and the planet and everything seriously where are we going where are we gonna go we have to go somewhere else you know and some people are starting to take it really seriously and they're like we need to leave here we need to have a solid eight-year plan and all the doomsday stuff is starting to be become really like just true and so yeah i mean stuff like this it does kind of give you hope like okay She's okay. Look at her. She's making some movies. She is happy. She's married. She married some Swedish guy. She's
0: she's doing good. Yeah. The first marriage is just the rehearsal for the second. <laughs> that is an incredible line of dialogue. Yeah. I thought someone died. You made me you made me think someone died. You're just going through a divorce. That's <laughs> so good. Yeah, I, I love, I really love this movie and I think revisiting it now, this was a very important time and this was you, right, Arthur? This one's been on the list for a while, I think.
2: Yeah, I've wanted to watch this ever since it came out. Really in 2007, I remember seeing it, you know, seeing posters, seeing trailers and thinking, oh, I gotta, I gotta get around to that. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I mean, the fact that it was animated probably had something to do with me saying, eh not that into it but i've grown as a person animated films are incredible and worthy of all the accolades we can shower upon them and yeah it's an incredible film so i'm glad i finally got around to it
1: yes i uh like arthur i have been meaning to watch it ever since it came out uh because i was paying attention to the oscars um and i noticed it in the oscars they showed clips of it um, and I, it really hit me. I mean, of course, back then I was like, hey, my sister's name, Marjan. That's, you know, that's cool. Anyway, so I I wanted to, and I, I am really glad that I finally got the chance to see it. And, um, yeah, dang, it's really worth a watch and it's not that long. And I, I just, I really want people to see this one.
2: I don't know if it began this trend or if it's just a part of the trend but I I love the use of graphic novels and animation and this kind of style to tell political stories uh have either of you read March from John Lewis I have not oh good stuff and what about Mouse M-A-U-S oh I love Mouse yeah both really great examples of using graphic novels to delve into you know telling personal stories about politics hard to approach sometimes, but I think through this medium, it becomes very relatable and approachable. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's what I was saying earlier is
0: that to my mind, this was the first film that did this, that Mm -hmm. talked about such recent history and such graphic war through animation. Mm -hmm. I'm not counting allegorical films like the son of the white Mare* or something like that. Like this film depicts what actually happened through animation
2: its intent is to educate.
0: Yes, and I'd never seen anything like that before, and now, yeah, I feel like because we just recently had Flea, which was a pretty great film from twenty twenty one. Oh, yes. I want to watch that. Yeah. And uh, so this this movie has really opened the doors, and those doors are still open today. Um, it was a it was the triple punch of two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, Persepolis, Waltz with Bashir, and Mary and Max. And those three films all being animated and all looking so good. They had budget behind their animation and talking about such adult themes and telling such adult stories really just has kept that market going. And people still go out to see those movies. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, great. Thank you both least thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Elise, such yes, a
0: pleasure thanks. having you on our episode tonight.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. You guys are just so much fun, and I'm such a fan, and I, I just really want people to listen to you, because you're <laughs> awesome.
0: <laughs> well, you did wonderful, and you brought so much to the table, and we really appreciate your discussion. To our regular listeners, uh, this is the end of this week's episode of A Century in Cinema. Join us next week. We will be discussing the... Uh, underground cult classic Twilight directed by Catherine Hardwick starring Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson. And uh, I, I look forward to discussing that. If you would like to listen to more of a century in cinema, we do have weekly Patreon episodes. They come out the same day as the regular episodes. And if you would like to join our Patreon, the link is in the show notes as well as in all of our Facebook posts. Our Facebook is called A Century in Cinema, keeping it easy enough. And we would just like to extend a huge thank you to all of our listeners. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and review on the podcast streaming service of your choice. And tune in next week and tell your friends and family about A Century in Cinema. We love reaching out to new listeners. And thank you so much to Nathan Royal for our show's music. And thank you, Elise. And thank you, Arthur. And thank
2: you, Andrew. Thank you.